0: This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal.
1: I'm speaking today with global HR expert Raj Atomchandani. Raj works in the people talent space. He's worked across many industries, including retail technology, insurance, healthcare, and banking, among others. He's currently the Chief People Officer of Applyboard, Inc., an online platform for international student recruitment. He's an employment and labor lawyer by training, an adjunct professor for the Masters of Industrial Relations Program at the University of Toronto, and he serves as an advisor to the Coalition of Innovation Leaders Against Racism. Raj joins me today from Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me here.
1: I'm really excited to talk to you about career and workplace trends. It's not something we've tackled yet here on the LifeSpeak podcast. I want to start talking about people who may be listening who are looking for work. We hear so many things in the news right now, quiet quitting, mass layoffs, uh, companies are struggling to recruit. What do people really need to, to understand about the job market right now? And, and, and should we really be believing all these headlines?
0: So I think the job market has shifted a bit, and I'm definitely seeing a bigger trend of companies kind of reducing their headcount. And I think what happened during the pandemic is um, money was cheap in the macro market. A lot of valuations in the technology space were really focused on top line and not on efficiency and profitability. And that's completely shifted now. So there's definitely a shift. Companies, I'd say, are kind of right-sizing and looking at their talent and trying to just be a little more optimized. But at the same time, every single company out there, all the HR people I speak to, are all looking for special talent as well. So I'd say even though the macro trend is maybe a lot of shifting is happening, there are always opportunities. And I would advise people if they're looking for a role, not to be discouraged in any way, that there's lots of stuff happening out there. I would say that I think a lot of people when they're looking for roles, sit down in the morning, they get on their computer, they go through you know, the various job websites and apply to tons of jobs and feel like they've accomplished a lot in the day. The reality is there's many stats out there, but it's either three out of four jobs in Canada or four out of five jobs in Canada are never advertised and they really happen through networking. So wherever you are in your career search, I would advise to spend as much time networking as possible. I'm not sure if you want to talk about networking in a little more detail. I find a lot of people are scared of the word. So I'm happy to talk about it a little more if you want to.
1: Yeah, I would like to hear more about it. I think also network seems to have changed a lot. There's a lot less going for coffees than there used to be. And it seems like there's more conversations on Zoom. Tell me what your thoughts are on networking. What do people need to be doing?
0: Yeah, so I think people think of networking uh, a lot of times as I'm going to call someone, I'm going to ask them for a job. It you know, sometimes sounds like a word that you know, some people don't want to be associated with. But I think networking is really about driving connection with other people and finding out what they do in their roles and in their companies um, on a day to day or week to week basis. So people should treat it like more of exploring what's out there versus I want a job. You know, you can't call someone and say, meet them for the first time and say, uh, you know, I'm looking for work. Do you have anything for me? It should really be about understanding them, their careers, understanding what advice they can give you. And if people do that and meet lots and lots of people, I have full confidence that um, opportunity will come out of it. It's just not something you can sort of predict. I I tell my students, you know, you probably got to meet 50 people that you don't know today in order to get your next role. And I'm not sure if it's the first person you're going to meet or the 50th, but I do know somewhere in there, there's going to be a person that helps you or. Is connected to an opportunity that is right for you. I also tell my students from a from a targeting perspective. When you're thinking about networking, you know it's really advisable to sit down, think about you know the twenty or thirty or forty companies that you would be interested in, you know, and then create a spreadsheet and just try and think of you know if I did my undergrad at U of T in neuroscience, let me look up grads from that program. Let let me look up people that I've worked before. Let me go through LinkedIn and mine all the possible connections I could have and then to start reaching out to them and start creating the networking conversations. I also try and think of the network in, in three different ways, sort of three different levels. Like The first level would be trusted people that you know, people that you might have worked with, people that are friends, people that are friends of the family. That second level might be a connection you have, even if it's distant through school or a program or or an old workplace. And that third is really a cold call. And it might be someone who's out of place you're interested in, but you have zero or very little to no connection with them. And so you got to treat each of those segments differently too.
1: I guess network is something we should be doing throughout our career, whether we're working or looking for work.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's something you should never stop. A lot of people, you know, they get their next role and then they like pause the networking. They work for a few years, heads down. Then they wake up one day and they want their next role and they got to restart it. And just as you said, if you're always doing it, you know, you never lose the momentum and you're you're constantly like, you know, in the know of what's out there and, and connecting with people. It's really powerful to continue doing it.
1: I want to talk a bit about professional etiquette. The first time you and I spoke this came up in our conversation. You know, we're so much more reliant than ever on, you know, messaging apps like Teams and Slack to communicate with everybody, clients, colleagues, managers, employees. How has this impacted professional etiquette? Like are our old-fashioned phone calls just dead and gone forever?
0: I don't know if it's affected etiquette. What I do know is that There is uh, something I think I learned in first year psychology where when you're speaking to someone, you know, 7% is the words, 38% is I think the tone and 55 is your body language or, or something like that. And so all I know for sure is a lot of things can get misinterpreted in our quick messaging and, you know, some of the mediums you mentioned. And so I would think of my messages and I would, again, segment them. So if it's like quick little things that are not going to be even if they were interpreted wrong, wouldn't have like a material effect on anything, you know, maybe that's fine. But if I was dealing with anything controversial, anything that was sensitive, I think I would either do in-person is always best, video second and phone is third. I think um, emails and messaging should be left for things that are, you know, maybe very tactical and less prone to being misinterpreted. So I guess to answer your question, I don't think much has changed. I think our mediums have changed. And we need to segment the things we're trying to talk about and make sure we're using the right medium for the right message.
1: Do you find, and I don't want to throw the younger generation under the bus here, but do you find that that's something that maybe people who are newer to the workforce struggle with setting that tone?
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I would use the word struggle. For me, they've grown up in a different world where that might be their their real way, deep way of communicating, and maybe for someone like you or someone like me that's sort of come later in our life. So they might be actually more um, adept at using that as a communication tool, but I think we need to think about all the people we're talking to and make sure that we're using the right medium for them too. So I guess I would segment the message and the reader of the message or the listener or hearer of the message as well.
1: So think about who's gonna be receiving the message and how it might be received. I always sort of think, read it over first before you press send.
0: Yeah, totally. And, you know, and it's like just kind of that whole thing around common sense and judgment. You have to apply that to everything we do, especially in the workplace.
1: And speaking of different generations working together, we now have four generations in the workforce. We've got baby boomers, Gen X, millennials. Now Gen Z has entered the workforce. What are you seeing as the impact of this?
0: So first of all, I mean, you're saying four. I think I read somewhere it's actually closer to seven if you think about summer students. But whatever the number is. Um, I read somewhere that a generation is based on common values, common outlook, and common experience. And so I think the first comment I'd make is, when you think about the speed of change, I think the the way we view generations in the past, you know, like those long windows of time, I think those are really going to crunch. So today we might have four or five or six or seven or, or whatever the number is of generations in the workforce. I think 10 or 15 years from now, that number is going to be vastly higher because of the speed of change. And so I think I think it just goes back to what you said, like you need to be super kind of focused on the person that's getting your message, the type of message you're delivering and make sure we are agile and adaptable to all the different audiences we're gonna have out there. And I think that's probably a core skill we might not have in the workforce right now, we may not have trained for it, but I think that'll be coming on everyone's radar sooner than later.
1: How do you train for that?
0: I haven't figured that out. I think we'll be able to give people a few tools or a few ways of thinking that they can bring to their conversations and maybe pause for you know five or 10 seconds before they send a message or have a chat and just sort of assess the situation and maybe cater for that particular situation in a different way than they might have for talking to someone else.
1: What do you think the different generations have to learn from each other in the
0: workspace? I think, you know, if I'm going to split up the generations a little maybe i'll just kind of talk about people later in career and people earlier in career because i think that's an easier way to look at it for me right now i think because of the way they've had to grow up during the pandemic you know a lot of them had very precious years of being with people taken away i think they can really look at the the later career generation and learn about leadership learn about longer view thinking maybe understand some of the cycles that have happened in the business world because they're not always, they may not have been exposed to all the ups and downs that people in later career have. I
1: thought that was an interesting point when you just said that they may not have the earlier career, people may not have experienced the ups and downs that later career people have.
0: So when I think about, you know, the generations of the workforce right now, it's easier for me just to think of people later career and people, you know, earlier in their career. And I think the earlier career people can learn from the later career people in in terms of understanding all the cycles that have happened in the later career person's life, um, in terms of work, because we have been through many ups and downs and seen that there's always an end to it. And if I was an earlier stage person, you know, looking at the economy right now, hearing all the stuff out there, I might get you know really scared about what's going to happen in the future. But having been through many cycles myself, I know there's an end to it, know there's positivity coming out at the end. And so it's something we just have to focus on, focus on the basics and get through. And I think that's a a good thing for a person earlier in career to learn. And I think for us, you know, or someone like me, who's later in career, you know, I've had many mentees and I can definitely tell you that I have grown in my understanding and use of technology. I have grown in my understanding and kind of speed of um, delivery. So, you know, the world I come from, I've been in the corporate world. I've, you know, I'm on boards and I've been in senior positions and the speed of delivery at the level I'm at can seem kind of slow, I think, for, for people earlier in career. And so I think there's um, a speed in the current way of working and technology and failing fast and being in service to customers and being agile in development that I have been learning from the the earlier in career people I speak to. And I think that's, that's a super important thing. We need to blend the two to get the right fit for the market, to get the right cadence in business. But I think those two sort of segments of the workforce can definitely learn from each other. And of course, within those segments are all the generations, but that's just sort of a general understanding for me and the way I look at it.
1: We hear a lot about having job satisfaction. We're supposed to be striving for job satisfaction. What does that really mean? I mean, is it different for everyone?
0: So I always think of this in a very, very simple way, and it might be me. I think there are two things people look for at work. I think one, they want to know that their work they're doing every day is connected to something bigger, connected to the vision or the impact the organization they're at is having. And they want to be able to see that and feel that so that they don't feel like what they're working hard at every day is meaningless. They want to know it's meaningful. And I think the second thing is people want to know that they're growing. So when they're in an organization, they want to know all this work they're doing, the good days, the bad days, is all leading to them being better and having more optionality in the future. So I think that's sort of like my simplistic way of looking at it. But when I step back, um, one of the things I ask my students in my uh, career management class on their first day is, you need to rank money, lifestyle, power, impact, because you have to understand what you're looking for and the priority of it when you go look at jobs, when you look at opportunities, when you have to choose between jobs, which which is happening often now with my students. And if you don't know yourself, it's going to be really hard to find a job that's satisfactory, and it's going to be really hard to measure opportunities in front of you and how they fit with you. So I think of those four things, money, lifestyle, power, impact, you got to rank them, you have to know yourself, And I think that's super important. And I also think when people look at roles, for example, when I talk to some of my students, I might recommend consulting. And they'll say, well, Raj, I don't want to work that hard. And that's a very one variable analysis. So I always say you got to do the accounting on the whole role, like the whole job, the whole role. And that might include the hours you work, but it also includes the growth you're going to get, the career opportunities you're going to get next, the money you're going to make, you know the feeling of satisfaction you might have, the people you're going to work with. So there's so many variables and I think people need to do the whole accounting on roles before they understand their own level of satisfaction or not. Those are the what that's the way I think about it.
1: And those might change, right? I mean, it might be something we have to reconsider at different points in our career. Money may be be very important at one point and less important later.
0: Yeah. Like many of my students are, you know, starting young families and they want to like have a lot of time at home for the next five years for that irreplaceable time. And for that stage of life, their priorities are going to shift. And, you know, right after when that's no longer their kids have gone to school or my older friends or kids have left for universities, their priorities shift and the way they look at their career shifts as well.
1: How do you think the pandemic changed people's outlook about job satisfaction?
0: It's a really big question. But I'm going to start with a concept I kind of just have in life in general, that you can't go back. And I always kind of think about that. You think about wine. For me, once I had really, really good wine, it was hard to go back. And so I think the pandemic forced a change on the world of work that might've happened over 15 or 20 years to happen literally in weeks. It forced that change. And now people have realized how much personal time they've given up and lost traveling to and from work, maybe being in the workplace all day and not being around their house. And so I think it's hard to go back. And so I think workplaces are talking about the time and place of work and they're trying to get people back to work. And we're seeing that have mixed rates of success. And people, you know, transitioning slowly, I think the workplace might get there. I think that's a conversation that's sort of old. For me, the conversation should be around how do we look at work in a way that we can measure it properly wherever a person is working? And I think about law and I think about consulting. They've had that in place for a long time because the work is far more measurable and set up to be far more measurable because they bill by the hour than lots of other types of work. And so I think workplaces have to start thinking about all those other types of work and how they can measure progress and performance without using FaceTime as a proxy for person doing well or not well. So I I think we have a lot of stuff we still have to work on and we're really focused on time and place. And I don't think that's like where the energy should be going right now. I think it needs to be going on work and like, how can we make it way more measurable um, than it is today?
1: And I guess maximizing what you're doing, wherever you happen to be while you're doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and so pandemic shifted us in a way we'll, we're not going to go back to the old way for sure, because we now know we can do things, a lot of things from anywhere equally or better than we did before. I wrote an article right at the beginning of the pandemic on the loss of serendipity, because I think the few things we've lost with this virtual world is one. There are no random bumpins, and unless someone is scheduled in your calendar, you're probably not going to meet with them. And if you got to deal deal with a small issue that you would have popped it to an office for, you know, you're no longer doing that. It's scheduled. It's slower. I also think when we've looked at work in general, a lot of things happen in the background in all these sort of networks of conversations and people. And you know, when you look at decisions in the workplace. There's always these super nodes or people where information ends out, or they're the decision makers, but they're often not the people you think they would be. And because now all our meetings are formalized, everything's in the calendar. I think we've lost a bit of the speed of work and decision-making in the workplace. We got to figure out a way to get that back in a way that can work in the virtual world.
1: Do you think there's an answer to how we might do that?
0: Yeah, there's definitely an answer. I don't know it, but I, I, know, I know there's an answer. I think we haven't focused on it. And I think when we focus on it, we'll figure it out. I'm hoping there's some new technology that recreates face-to-face work world in some different way, helps us not lose some of the beauty of that.
1: Layoffs. Maybe someone who's listening right now has been laid off. They know there's restructuring coming. What should they start thinking about right now?
0: So again, I'm just going to go to network, 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 and create that list of companies you're interested in and start meeting people and do it right away and don't ever stop doing it. And I I don't know who said this, but I think it was that motivational speaker, Tony Robbins. And he said something like, most people overestimate what they can do in a week or a month or a year and underestimate what they can do in five or 10. And so I'd always tell people, um, you know, focus on today, focus on getting your next role But don't forget, there's many, many years in front of you and you can do anything you want to do. You just sort of have to understand the direction and start making those action steps, taking some action to get there.
1: What about career coaching? Do you think that is something that somebody who may be either looking to transition away from their job out of choice or maybe they didn't have a choice? How could a career coach support with that? Is that is it worth it?
0: I mean, that's a broad question. I don't want to say if it's worth it or or not worth it, because I think that depends on the person. But for me, I would only get a career coach that had done something that I was really, really aspiring to do. And if they hadn't, I'm not sure I would find credibility in it. I think a smarter approach for me is to, and I've done this my whole career, is find mentors. And I would focus on mentors that are kind of gone above and beyond where you are today but you look at them and you're like kind of in awe of what they've accomplished because i think you know that might be motivating and inspiring and it also as you go along your career um, and this might be hard to do when you're starting but as you go along your career pick up people that have been helpful pick up people you admire pick up people that care about you and create your own little board of directors i think that's far more powerful than for me, going to a career coach, because all these people know you in a, in a deeper way than a coach might ever be able to. And so for me, it's way more about mentorship, your own board of directors or advisory board, um, and the people that are close to you. I feel like that could be far more powerful. And I think a thing I would say I've noticed with my students, when they come, you know, when I first meet them, their view of what is possible for them is so sort of boxed in and limited. And I think a lot of us do that to ourselves just because we've never heard of what's possible or if we have, we can't see the path from where we are today to where that goal might be. So I would really just scroll through LinkedIn and look at people with titles or roles or you know, at all these famous companies that are doing something you think is amazing and just look at their path because there's many paths to get everywhere and we have many years of work and I literally think anyone can do almost anything that they want, you know, besides maybe being an astronaut. And so, you know, there's, you can do anything you want and there's many paths to get everywhere. So don't constrain yourself and like really figure out what your dream is and go get it because it's totally possible.
1: I also think I hear what you're saying is that you don't need to see the path exactly from A to B to C to D right right away, right? Because it's not going to probably go the way you think
0: agreed agreed and we can't predict it like i think i've seen a model of a career that's like a spider web and like it's hard to predict but i'd add one thing to what you said i'd say you can't see see a to b to c to d but when you're going from a to b make sure that you know you don't look at b but you look at what b gets you next so don't take the job that's in front of you take what you think it gets you next because that gives you the gut check if you're on path or off path at least a a high level, it gives you a gut feel.
1: I want to talk about burnout. This is something that, I mean, I see around me with family and friends, even colleagues sometimes, and mental health in the workplace. You know, this isn't something we talked about a whole lot before the pandemic, or maybe not as much as we should have. I'm wondering what impact that's had on human resources, things like burnout, mental health challenges. What are HR teams faced with now now? more than they were before and have they needed to adapt the way they work?
0: One of the reasons we're seeing so much more of mental health challenges and, and burnout is the the bookends of work have been moved. So because we've gone online, there's not that delineation between our workspace and our home space and our life. It's all just blended together. And so from all the things the things i've read people are working much longer even though they're saving their commute time they're working longer having a little more trouble separating their work and personal life and so because of that i think what you mentioned i think that's why things are growing from an hr perspective i don't think you know anyone's figured out the complete solution but i think we do know that all our leaders and you know companies in general need to be much more empathetic to our employees and their personal life situations. And so I think it's happening in a lot of ways, but it's very informal and not programmatic and people are trying to figure it out, but I don't think we've got there. And so that's something I think, again, will change dramatically over the next year or two as companies start figuring it out and other companies start filling in that space of giving people the tools that they need to manage their lives more effectively.
1: I'm gonna pivot a little bit, quiet quitting. I hear so much about this. I hear so many different definitions of what that means. What, what does that mean to you?
0: For me, it means when a person comes to work and they're not giving you their all, they're doing the bare minimum and they're, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of half-assing and just doing what they need to to survive in the role. And so I think, I think that's partially on the company and partially on the employee. I think companies can provide, and you know, I've worked at many companies and advised many companies, as you mentioned, companies can provide either enabling environments or disabling environments. And so we have to look at the quiet quitting as part of a holistic system. And so an employee's quiet quitting when they don't feel like they're having impact, you know, their leader might not be giving them the right sort of world to work in and, and feedback and guidance. And so we have to think of it from the employee's perspective, but also from the company's perspective, we have to disproportionately put the effort of how to change that on the company. And so companies start to have to start creating far more enabling environments for this new world we're in, where we're working hybrid and you know people are burning out and working longer than ever. So I think we have to think about it like that. So I, th- I think of quiet quitting, people aren't giving you their all, but I think you know a lot of that is on the company to change. And if I'm a person who is working and quite quitting and not giving my all, I think that's a big signal that you're not in the right place for you. You're not an enabling environment for you. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It's just like, it's not the right place for you. But if you're going to quite quit, like, you know, make sure you know that you can go find another place that might be far more of a fit for you. And you should really do that, right? Because it's not fair to anyone. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the company. It's not fair to your family and friends. Because you're not going to be your best you.
1: Are you seeing more acceptance by, say, managers, uh, employers of people who are maybe prioritizing their families a little bit more over work?
0: A hundred percent. And one of the things uh, we're starting to do at work when we um, we start new projects or create new teams or with my leadership team, we're going through like a few questions like, you know, what times in the week are a hundred percent? you don't want to ever get into them with work. So it might be some people dropping their kid at school or some other people that work for me. It might be like their gym class, they do three days a week at noon. And just having those conversations with people to know what time is really, really precious to them. And then as a team, all just vowing to not interrupt that time for that person. So we're starting to see things like that happen. I don't think I've seen those before.
1: And those help support employees mental health
0: yeah and it's also you know it's bonding people know what's important to other people there's so many benefits to it and it's like it's the right way of working like i'd rather a person get to go to the gym when they want to and come back refreshed and happy and energized and excited than you know feel bad because they missed their workout day
1: i want to ask you a few questions that i've heard from from people who are job searching they're they're kind of basic questions but it just feels like the way that we look for work has changed so much and and people just don't know what they should be doing. So some basic questions for job seekers. Cover letters. Yes or no, how important are those?
0: So I can tell you for me I'm not a big fan or reader of cover letters, but there definitely are people out there and I'd say there's no downside to doing a cover letter but for the effort that goes into writing it. And if you're asking me if it's a yes or no, I'd have to say it's a yes. And I'd I'd also add, just in case someone reads it, it needs to look one little notch over generic. So, you know, it can't be the same cover letter for 30 different roles you're using. You need to add a sentence in that shows, you know, a sentence or two that shows that it's customized for the role you're going for. So even though I think a lot of people don't read them, we have to do them.
1: And check your spelling.
0: Oh my God. Some people, and it's not me, they would get so thrown off by like bad grammar, bad spelling that they would reject a person without even uh, reading further. And so because there are like, you know, different people, different opinions, different hurdles with them. Yeah. I think that's a super important point. Like get it checked and rechecked.
1: Follow-up emails. Let's say you applied for something. uh, Maybe you've had an initial interview or discussion. Do you send a follow-up email and what do you say in it? If you do.
0: So my rule is before midnight, the day that you met the person. And again, not 100% necessary, but it's also, I would say, table stakes, right? You should, it's just kind of common courtesy, and it shows that you're engaged in the role or the conversation that you had. So before for me, the rule is before midnight, the day of the meeting. And my second rule would be it must capture something that was in that conversation that again shows it wasn't generic. And I have used everything from some sort of reference to a restaurant, reference to a story, reference to an article we talked about, reference to you know, a current event, but something that was relevant and in the conversation so the person knows it wasn't generic. I also got a, a follow-up question from some people asking if they should do it in writing. And I personally have got like cards and you know, like little cute things that come in the mail and i find them amazing. The only thing is they're not as immediate as email. So if you're inclined to do, you know, something, you know, in handwriting or something more formal, totally cool, but you must do the email, i think, within the day of the conversation sort of, and then you can do the other thing later.
1: How long should we expect to hear back from the recruiting manager? after we've had an interview, it seems to be taking companies longer and longer to decide whether to hire someone. How long should we expect to wait to hear something?
0: Unfortunately, there is not an answer because every role, every company, every recruiter, like there could be a huge range. Um, And I really, I think depends on on so many variables, but primarily depends on how urgent the need is in New York. I think I can't answer that question because it's It is what it is, as they say, and you just need to remain positive, follow up to show that you're still engaged, you know, like weekly, at at least at a minimum. And uh, just kind of know that that's, you know, even though it's the most important thing to you or it might be the most important thing to you for the person who's working on it, it might be number 10 or 15 or 20 or we don't know what number it is on their list of importance. And so because of that, we can't predict it.
1: You teach in the Masters of Industrial Relations and Human Resources program at University of Toronto. So, so you're really seeing head on directly this new generation of HR leaders. How is this crop of students seeing things differently or approaching things differently from maybe when you started your own career?
0: I would say, and this is 100% just personal observation, I think the the cohort, you know, around me, would have, maybe this is the wrong sort of wording, but like they would have done anything for the right job. They would have worked hard, money was important. <clears throat> and I'm seeing uh, the newer cohort of students really focus on what kind of social impact the company's having. Will I get a better lifestyle? Like I don't want to really give away my life. I got some personal hobbies, I got a side hustle. And so I'm seeing a lot more balance in, in the newer generation than I would have in a, in a generation closer to mine would have just stuck it out gritted it out and like grinded without without possibly the right look at their self and their life and what they wanted i think the the newer generation is more balanced more thoughtful not only about their own life but about the impact the organizations they're working on are having on the world
1: speaking of the world it's uh it's a challenging place right now what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic
0: honestly i i I don't know. I've always just been sort of a happy, positive person. But, you know, when I, I think part of what gives me joy for me is, you know, working with the students I work with, uh, working in organizations and trying to make people's lives better in whatever little way that might be. And it might be, you know, a small tool that they get through us. Um, it might be that they get, you know, a little learning in their, in their day. They might get a little more money or they might get some time back in their life like whatever little impacts I can have through the interactions I have with people keep me really positive and there's so much you know greatness in the world and I feel very fortunate and that just keeps me happy and, and kind of focused on the future
1: is there anything that I didn't ask you around workplace trends that you want to talk about that maybe I didn't mention
0: no I, I think I mentioned this before but I really want to emphasize it People can do whatever they want in their life and career. I find too many people, you know, go through their undergrad, kind of land their first job, don't really ask many questions, which is fine for your first job or two, but then just go on automatic pilot for the next 40 years. And for that reason, they may not be as satisfied as they could be. People have to take active control of their career. They have to take active control of continually growing And they have to realize they can do whatever they want in the world the path might not be clear the path might might not lead to something new tomorrow but there is definitely a path and just know that you can do whatever you want and go get it because you know life's too short to like wake up every day and spend eight or ten hours a day at work and not be you know full of energy excitement and happiness
1: raj atam shandani thank you so much for speaking with me today
0: my pleasure. It's been really fun talking to you. I think there's so much more to unpack, uh, but maybe we'll do that on a different day. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com/podcast.